everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 181. That was my idea. Recorded February 22nd, 2015, and brought to you by Element OP Productions. ElementOP.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Linux show that's not about Linux, but about life in the context of Linux. I am your host, Mark, the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockroll, and joining me this week, as usual, are your two stalwart co-hosts, Chris, the command line godfather, and Seth, the gooey kid, Anderson. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, and welcome to the craziness that is our show. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Welcome, one and all, to the great Everyday Linux show. Step right up. Get your tickets here. See the bearded lady. That's what you sounded like there. I was going to go somewhere, and then it was like, it was like, no, that's a dumb path. And I was like, oh. (laughs) You're already too far down the path to turn around. Yep. (laughs) Uh, One of the classic uh, quick-witted moments today, uh, one of my friends commented that he met his wife at the fair. And one of our mutual friends said, "You went to the freak show. She went to the freak show, and there you were." What a moment! It was awesome. <laughs> that was that was a good one. I'll have to remember that one. One of my one of the best ones in my life was uh, I was standing around with a group of people, and and a guy casually asked, uh, "Mark, was your was your mom a big woman?" Because you know I'm tall. Um, and I I said no. She's actually like five feet three. Was your dad a big man? And before I could answer, the guy behind us said no, but the milkman was. <laughs> Whoopsie. That was a, that was a good moment. I had to give him two points for that one. Like, okay, Definitely. that was too funny to be. That would almost over. be a high five moment on that one. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, as I said in the intro, the the Linux show that's not about Linux. As promised, this show is not about Linux. Um, Last week, I'm pretty sure it was last week, uh, just on a, a, a tangential side note, um, I mentioned that I invented Pandora back when there wasn't the technology for Pandora or broadband or any of that sort of stuff, <laughs> and I told a little story. So I, I, I got to thinking, maybe that would be an interesting show topic, things that we have thought of before they were time or before the technology was ready. Um Things like that. I had a, a discussion with some friends today over lunch about that, and uh, it, it was interesting. So I, I kind of thought maybe these guys are going to have some too, but also it'll be a springboard for you, the listeners. We have a smart audience right there, out there. You've all thought of something. What was the thing that you thought of but didn't didn't deliver on or, or the technology didn't exist at the time? Um, so that's what we're going to talk about. But first, um, a little bit of meaningless drivel uh, <laughs> because that's what we do because before we get to the meaningless drivel we've got the meaning yeah anyway um so last week mike the brit asked about stacking routers i think it was last week was that two weeks ago two weeks two weeks you weren't i was here, here for that yeah, one last week yeah um and he asked about um could he put his isp's router in front of his own router and we said that you could do it in bridge mode um and that uh, not everybody allows that. Well, I, I, it occurred to me that there's a third example that we didn't mention. In fact, the one that I'm using uh, right now. Uh, many routers will offer a DMZ mode, which is almost the same thing as a bridged mode. It's still uh, you still have your firewall, but what it will do is DMZ demilitarized zone, right? Um, uh, from military and 
war, basically. Um, in the grand scheme of things, a DMZ is where your server sits. So you sit behind on your private network with all your clients, just Joe and Jim and Jane's desktop. Then the, the web server that both Joe and Jim and Jane need to get and the world at large needs to get sits in the DMZ. That's an area where um, it's, it's like its own separate little network. Um, and that's the safest way to do networks um, uh, rather than punching holes directly in a firewall to your servers, which is what almost everybody does. <laughs> most <laughs> most guys, even in the big uh, 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 IT centers, don't do a DMZ because it it, it there is put, I'm, that's that's an ir- irresponsible thing to say, to say. Most guys don't. It is common not to do a DMZ because it adds its own sets of tricks. Because you've got now two sets of rules about who can set things, and you could actually lock people out of your own servers while attempting to lock other people out of them. Um, yada yada. Uh, but all of that to say. Many routers offer a DMZ mode in which the router itself is that DMZ. So they have access to the internet and you have access to it, but there's no direct interaction between the internet and you. So you still then have to punch firewall holes and do routing and all that sort of stuff, but it lets you, it gives your home router a public, publicly routable IP address. So you're not double natting. One of the things we talked about that was difficult. Uh, and you're not uh, going through the, the, the ISP routers perhaps janky firewall software. So j- just throw that out there. Did I did I just babble through that entirely? You're both staring at me blankly. <laughs> You're close. I would say, Mark, you, you, you made it through to an understandable point, but you went through a lot <laughs> a of around. brush to get there. Yeah. So, yeah. Why use 10 what you words said works. to describe a situation when 300 will equally When 30 survive. will do? Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, anyway. Well, I realized as I was talking that, well, I, maybe there are people who don't understand that, so I need to back up and give a little more. And then, well, maybe people don't understand that. And before long, I was actually all the way back into a cave drawing with berry juice on the wall, and I couldn't yep. get out. I was stuck. You were stuck, and we just let you get stuck and, <laughs> yeah, and reveled for, in the thanks moment. Thanks for helping me out. <laughs> yeah, no problem. I like letting people talk themselves into a corner. It's kind of fun. You know, what is the old saying? Um, better for people to think you're an idiot than open your mouth and prove them correct. <laughs> so I was happy to be over here with my mouth closed. <laughs> I, I, my idiocy has been proven many times. Um, <laughs> but anyway, the, the point is that's a, another option that we didn't talk about. Bridge mode, uh, connecting yourself directly to the network, which is very difficult. Uh, but, uh, and then this DMZ mode, which was available on my AT&T router and may be available on others as well. Hmm. It's not worth looking. It's worth looking into it because um, it eliminates a little bit of stickiness if you're going to stack routers together. Yeah. Um, sorry, that, that really turned into a big tar ball <laughs> of mess. Sometimes it's obvious that I'm multitasking when I do this. I'm checking uh, stats. I'm making sure the recording's working. I'm checking levels. That was one of those moments where it became really obvious. And you guys were just <laughs> sitting back, just watching. We're not going to help. There's a life raft right here, but I'm not going to throw it to him. I'm going to make him. It builds character. It does. It does. You get some hair on your chest now. Good for you. <laughs> You know, we like the raw nature of the show, Mark. So we just talked about that a couple of weeks ago. So we were letting you be raw. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> it's great fun. 
<laughs> All right. So uh, that was about that. Uh, I talked about the Pi 2 <clears throat> a little while back. So yeah. it was out of stock. Well, it's no longer out of stock at one of the three distributors listed on the Raspberry Pi website. So mine is on my way to me. Should be here Tuesday. I'm super nice. excited about the Pi 2. That is awesome. I can't wait to hear what you think of it and, and what you end up using it for. Well, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to use it for, but more on that in a minute. Welcome back, Chris. We glossed right over that. You were um, out last week not well, uh, so welcome back. Well, I, it's wait, wait, wait. I wasn't technically ill. It just I had no voice. It was his birthday. Um, for some... Yes. <laughs> Some Chris always manages to get sick on his birthday or his anniversary or his wife's birthday. I do, which is weird. But last week, I woke up Sunday morning and I had almost zero voice. Um, It was actually a very quiet day in my household since I couldn't talk. Um, And then on top of that, you know, the network, my network decided to go belly up. So it was kind of a cosmic dueling of both possible problems at one time. But so I've been fighting, losing my voice for the last week. Um, even this morning, it was a little raspy and sounded like it was going to fall off any, at any minute. You know, that, that voice that you hear people have when they're 85 and they've been smoking cigars for their entire life. <laughs> yeah. That's what I sounded like for a week. So yeah, but so far today, not so bad. It hasn't been often, but there have been a few times that I've been tapped to do voiceover work for. Uh, commercial projects, small commercial, like local chamber of commerce uh, type projects. But uh, sometimes when I think that a a, a more uh, grungy voice is necessary, I'll come down and record first thing in the morning. I'll get up out of bed and and come straight down here and talk in this voice. Welcome to the world of hell. Because, um, you know, you always you have that different voice in the morning when you haven't talked for a while. Sure. So I had that voice for a week, <laughs> and then almost nothing this su- that Sunday. So, yeah, it was great. <laughs> it was it was about twenty five years ago, but I was actually tasked to be the voice of Satan once. That was fun. That would be kind of entertaining. Yeah. It was a church Easter production, and and I got to be the the evil one himself. I did two always- versions. I did a fairly straight version, and then I did a really. Um, uh, deep ranting, foaming at the mouth version, and they said that when they played that version, the children in the in the show started crying. So we didn't. <laughs> they didn't do that one. <laughs> nice. That, you should. You know what, Mark? You should try to get that as a voiceover from now. You know, publicize that and see if that'll get you some yes, voiceover. Yes, like anytime there's Satan, just come to me. <laughs> well, not just not just Satan. Any evil bad guy type. Personona. Could be your, you know, the Satan of the Airways, Mark. <laughs> Mark Cockrell. The Satan ah, of the see? Soapbox. Um, we, we, we forgot, we, we lost a, a great nickname because of that, yeah. without that story. Uh, I, I would like to do more voiceover work. I enjoy it. Uh, I think I don't entirely suck at it. Um, but, you know. I always thought it'd be fun to do a, like an audible, be an audible person to do a reading. I always thought that would be Great in, in, in not just great work, but mind growing type work. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things where you'd have to try and expand your, your verbal palate so you could vocalize everything correctly. 
I could do a, you know, a physics book or maybe a history book, something where it's one voice. Uh, but I, I don't have the vocal range to do some of these audible performers I've heard, uh, do 15, 16, 17 voices in the course of a book. And the really good ones, the moment you hear the character, you know who it is. You don't need the author mm-hmm. to say, you know, Johnson said X. You hear it. And, and, um, you know, the guy I've mentioned before, Christian Rummel, uh, over 11 books in this series, he's had this one uh, set of voices that he's been so consistent across 11 books that I know exactly who's speaking the moment they start speaking. He never mixes, you know, there have been a couple of books where by the end of it, I wasn't quite sure whether it was person A or person B because the, the voice actor got a little uh, mixed up. But in this case, this dude is amazing. So after I heard his work a couple of times, I was like, I I, I can't be that. I could never be that guy. I could be the guy who reads, you know, recipes that I could do. But. Or the the Martian. You could have done the Martian book. Yes, because that was like four voices. See, see, I would be able to. I would be able to pull off multiple voices. The problem I always have because when uh, me and my family will play D anD D every once in a while, and I'm always tasked as a D as the game master. So I end up pulling all these different voices up. But what I always end up having a problem with is remembering which voice goes to which character. Exactly. So the way I figured myself how to take care of it is I would sample myself doing each voice. So like a goblin or a hobgoblin or, you know, troll or whatever. I would sample it on my phone while I was doing it. And then before when I would, you know, and I would be okay through the whole session. But then when we come back to do another round, I would then forget which voice was which which creature. So then I would replay that sample before the game started and have that ment- that voice in my head before. Yeah, I always thought that's probably playing. how the the professional readers do it. They they sample, they record themselves, maybe make notes. You know, um, they, they would have to. Yeah, about accents and stuff like that. Because when you're just reading a book. Oftentimes the accent is is not there. You know, the author doesn't present you uh, with anything more than uh, male or female. Sometimes they'll give you age, um, but you know, and sometimes by the name you can gotta get ethnicity. But if you're talking about uh, like a future sci-fi thing, you can't you know you can't figure out what accent there's going to be on another planet three thousand years from now. So that's right. up to the reader to figure that out and to perform that and. Uh, I'm always so impressed with the guys who can do that. Yeah, I, again, I always thought it'd be great. Oh, here we go. My voice is going already. <laughs> so I always thought it'd be great to do it. Um, it'd be interesting to to be able to say that you do voices for a living. Well, there's a. So, uh, I would. I was going to say there's ahead, a website um, that wants to like uh, get more like classic books online in an audible format. Right. You can submit one. You can submit work to them. Uh, I don't remember. I came across it one time and. I might have the link somewhere. That'd yeah, be cool. I've, I've read about that. Uh, I would be a terrible host right now if I didn't mention uh, elementopi.com slash audible, where you can sign up for uh, a free uh, uh, book. Essentially, you're signing up for the for the free uh, one month. Uh, you're signing up for the one month plan, one book a month. It's, uh, I think, fifteen ninety nine uh, per book, per a credit, and most books are one credit. Um, but if you sign up, get the book, cancel immediately, the book is still yours 
uh, for free. So if if you don't think you want to do it, that's, that's a way to get a free book. If you're not sure you want to do it, it's a way to get a free month. And if you cancel uh, at the end of or before the end of the month, uh, you get to it doesn't cost you anything. So it's a it's a it's a risk free way to try out Audible. Uh, com slash Audible. Um, and uh, uh, we make a very generous um, commission on that when you choose to do that. So you'd be helping me and potentially helping you unless you end up being like like me and just start handing over large portions of your paycheck to Audible. That's what's happened to me. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, I'm in that same boat. <laughs> I just got my hand slapped by the wife when we're going over bills today going, why did you spend $40 on books in because a week? Because they're good. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, because they're great. I wanted, I wanted to buy more, but I figured $40 was a little too much. <laughs> You know, and the folks at Audible, they're, they're clever, right? So they, they have these sales, right? So here's a uh, $1.99 for book one in a series of seven. Because mm-hmm. they're not stupid. They know that you pay the $2 and you're, you're, then you're immersed in that universe and you got to go get the next one. They could, mm-hmm. they could give away yep. the first Honor Harrington book. I mean, my right. gosh, there's like a thousand books in that now. Yes, like 18 books in the Enderverse. Um, it's, that's, yeah, in the, the uh, the Lost Fleet series. Uh, I, I said, you know, I finished eleven books. Uh, that that's in the the uh, Alliance series. There's like another eight or twelve books in the Syndicate series, and he's still cranking out books. So it's just a matter of time. By the time you get them all read, there'll be more. You know, and the other thing that surprises me is when when I'm reading those long series books like that. It's could you imagine how much work those authors have to do just to get those books. Yeah, planned and, and to keep everything uh, internally consistent, right? I'm in book twelve. I need to make sure I know what was in books one through through eleven, so that because if particularly with geeks, sci-fi geeks, if you go off the rails, they will let you know fast. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, well, the same thing will be true with with any of those the with any of the genres. You know, if you're a you know mystery novel guy and you're list, you're reading a series of books and you reference something that happened in book two. But by calling it something that was in book five, your your readers are going to freak. They're going to they're going to you know light you up like a candle. So I just I always have to give those long authors the the people that can do long series is a lot of credit because I couldn't do it. Yeah, I uh, like when I was reading the Honor Harrington, the Honorverse. You know, it had been out for several years before I came across it, and it took me because money was tight and I couldn't afford to buy a lot of them. It took me like two years to go from the first book up to the current book, which in real time, it's taken him 20 years to crank out those. And so now <laughs> right. I've, I read the last book like three or four months ago. Like, I mean, I bought it hardcover, you know, and I'm like, what am I, I mean, there, I don't have another yeah. book to read. It's like, I'm, I'm caught up. I'm going to the wiki. I'm going to the, uh, just, I'm searching the internet. I'm on the author's page. Yeah. There's not even hiding your hair of when the yeah. next book is due out. And I'm like thinking, dude, come on. For two years, you've been a part of my life. And now all of a sudden, nothing. Yeah. It, it was, it was my, uh, the exact same thing I just ran into. I hit 11, book 11 of the, the Lost Fleet series, um, that have been, you know, being cranked out for years. I've listened to them all in the last, you know, eight or nine months, and now there aren't any more. There's like uh, the next year, there might be another one written. And so that's why I recommend waiting until there's a big chunk of something, right? Go back and look at this classic because Audible has such a huge, um, 
library of stuff, you can do that. You can go back to something from the 70s. But, man, there's a real letdown when you read something, you know you can't follow up that story. Because I've been following up, like, at most a month later, right? Right. Uh, usually within a few days uh, of picking up the story. And then now I got nothing. I got to wait first for the book to be written and then for it to be published on audio. And then I'll listen to that in, you know, 12 or 15 hours and then wait another two years. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm contemplating been- starting over with book one and rereading them or um you know because some of them have been released out of like in chronological order go back and read all the stories in chronological order and kind of so but yeah that's just because you know i'm a i'm a geeky nerd or nerdy geek yeah all right so this has gone way too far i mean we're 20 minutes in here and we've been talking about books uh i didn't intend for that but that's okay uh i this is the way it happens. This is episode is all about us this week anyway. Uh, but we need to not be too long because Seth is soon to be iced in. Ice Storm 2015 is coming to Dallas. Yes. Um, I'm calling it Ice Fest 2015. Um, and I don't know. Um, you know, Dallas is getting hit with free, you know, of course, here's the deal. A half inch of rain in Texas gets the same or a half inch of sleet in Texas gets the same amount of reporting has like 17 feet of snow in Boston. That's right. like about, they're about the same event. Um, there's this local site that lists all the closings. When I went there, um, a few hours ago, there was one thing on it. And then I went there like 30 minutes ago. It was like 13 things. And now two, four, six, eight, ten. Oh, no work for me. Yes. <laughs> Victory is mine. Yeah, I just I refreshed it and uh my work policy is if the Dallas Independent School District is closed, there is no work um where I am. So um I get a paid vacation day tomorrow. So two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve, fourteen, sixteen, eighteen, twenty, two, four, six, eight, thirty, two, four, six. 36 things are current. And when I, I, we were talking before the show started and I told the guys there was like 13 things on it. So stuff's a closing fast and furious yeah. and has Dallas, North Texas shuts down, has the coming ice age Armageddon. Yeah. We, we had that happen here last week. Uh, there was the threat of severe weather. Um, and so it was president's day, right? So, a lot of schools were out anyway. I don't know why. Uh, but the one school district that wasn't closed, uh, and then the next day was closed again, and um, there was nothing. There, there was, I mean, that morning where everything was closed down, I made my usual 70-minute commute in like 30 minutes because there was not a car on the road. I was flying along on perfectly dry <laughs> pavement, and like me and seven other cars. Just, whoop, oh, this is awesome. They should close things every day. Um, <laughs> because there was nothing. There was barely even any rain. Uh, and But you, you, you can't know, right? If, you, if you're the one person who makes somebody come into work uh, on the day that there is ice, you're the goat, right? If you, if you close yeah. down things and there's nothing, you're the goat again. It's a no-win situation. So we actually called my wife's boss and told her that the county school district had been closed so that she could cancel school because her workplace has the same thing. If this county closes, we close. And she didn't even, she had, she didn't know it yet. It was like 1130. Uh, I was looking on my phone. Oh, there we go. Schools are closed. (laughs) (laughs) 
I wish we had that policy up here, man. We've had freezing rain, freezing fog. doesn't matter. Well, man, you know, this we've area, talked about this before. You have the I infrastructure know. for it. You know how to handle it. We don't. Well, yeah, but it's crazy when I hear that. It's like, oh, you guys had a half an inch of freezing rain. We had that yesterday, and the yeah. school still the, kept There's running. a word for that in Montana. It's called Tuesday. Yeah. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> also. <laughs> Actually, Tuesday, we're supposed to have snow. It is. So yay. It's a little different when things get well below freezing and that ice is like hard and you can drive on it right. and you can get traction. But when things hover right around freezing, it is worse. It is, you know, it's harder to drive on. It's harder for airplanes to ice and de-ice when the temperature hovers right around freezing. So it rarely gets cold enough, long enough for Texas to have the ground covered in ice where driving is actually less uh dangerous than whenever it's right around freezing and you get the black ice conditions everywhere so you know yeah and plus you know we're in texas so <laughs> deal with it yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it just always makes me laugh because we also had what was it last i think it was last week friday something like that we were no maybe it wasn't anyway we've we've been a couple of days of negative teens and lower without the or lower with the wind, and it was just like, yeah, it's a little cold. I think I'll put my other heavy jacket on. Yeah. Oh, it's now noon, and I need, it's now ten degrees. I should take my heavy jacket off. So I'm so. I'm working uh, the the other day. It's it's minus three wind chill. Chill. It's like ten degrees real and minus three wind chill. Um, and I'm walking across the parking deck in a short sleeve shirt and slacks. And one of my coworkers is like, "What are you insane?" I was like, "I'm going ninety feet." From a nice warm truck to a nice warm office, I don't think I'll die, and and I, I don't want to have to carry a coat with me all day. I'll be yeah. fine. There's a coat in the car if I need it. I'm good. Um, yeah, but yeah, people here in the south they just go nuts about that. And that happens here. Um, we have a parking garage for four floors down, so you have to get up, you get out of the elevators into this little um outside hallway and then you walk into the building and people are like bundled up in like yeah. i don't know parks. scarves on and and hoods and i'm walking around in my short sleeve i have my jacket over my arm just in case you know a blizzard hits in the next two seconds and they're like aren't you cold and i'm like if i were spending all day out here yes but yeah for 10 feet this feels awesome and uh so yeah Fun times, fun times. And of course, you know, we're well insulated, right? Yeah. There's a lot between the outer elements and our core. Yeah, so that's, that's, I, I get it. That's why I tell them I packed on the insulation early. I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, one, of, one of the things I said is, you know, how, uh, one of my coworkers, how do you do that? The same way seals and whales and polar bears do. Exactly the same mechanism as in play here. <laughs> Layers of bubber. That's yeah, right. We, <laughs> this is totally going I off the subject. I got my winter subject, coat on. But, uh, Even more? Yeah, no, um, we were, um, when a bunch of us at church were all losing weight at the same time, and, you know, we were all counting our calories, and I said, yeah, I can, you know, this one person, she's, like, trying to lose two ounces or something, and so she's, like, <laughs> she like, I can only have, you know, 1,200 calories, and I'm, like, I can have like 3000 calories and still lose a pound and a half a week. And she, yeah. and she goes, I'm so jealous. And I go, Hey, don't be jealous. I put in the work to be able to do this. <laughs> you didn't. Yeah. It's really easy to lose a hundred pounds fast. First put on 200 yeah. pounds. There you go. <laughs> okay. Um, one other thing that I wanted to present to the audience 
Uh, and uh, this has to do with the 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 Pi Two and the questions coming up uh, later and and recently about firewalls. Uh, Aaron, formerly of this podcast, has been talking to me for a while about the fact that we need to create an EDL product, and this new Pi Two coming out is enough for me to think this is a good idea. I want to create a Boris box, an official everyday Linux Boris box. So it would be based on the Pi 2. We'd throw in another um, uh, uh, NIC card. uh, I did it. Pin machine, pin number, ATM machine, NIC card. We put in another (laughs) network card. Uh, We would preload one of our favorites, and maybe we'd have two or three flavors of our favorite um, uh, firewalls on it. So maybe we'd have a an easy one, a grandma-approved, drop it in. It's no harder to use than the current Linksys device that you have now. And maybe a Tinker's Mode that's running raw IP chains. Um, wow. Something like that. Uh, but it would be something that we would sell, right? So the the pie and all the components and the box and all that might cost us, you know, 80 bucks. We'd sell it for 100 It'd be a way for us to to generate some income and a way for you to have a literal Boris box. I'm going to have you know maybe get a, an artist friend of mine make a a, a like a, a Russian looking box with that's all ratty and and none of the angles are straight you know and just looks looks ragged and it would be the Boris box product with the official EDL branded Boris box. That'd so guys, cool. what do you think about that? And audience, what do you think about that? We better like buy BorisBox.com now before somebody else does. It's already owned, but it doesn't matter. Oh. I've, I am convinced that URLs are irrelevant. You go to your search engine, you type Boris Box. As long as we're the first one that comes up, it doesn't matter who owns the domain. It says this web page is parked for free. So, Right, meaning somebody owns it. Huh. Somebody bought it and is parked. Oh, is that what that means? Okay. Yes. Yep. Huh. So, Chris, what are your thoughts it. on that? I, I like it. I like the idea. Um, I, I, I think we'd have a small argument about which distros would go on them but uh that's all right we can have a voting a vote off and we'll figure out which ones will make it on as far as that goes so audience what what are your thoughts on having owning your very own boris box i know that this audience is tends to be more tinker minded and that's fine but we would give you this the the packaging and the branding and plus you would know that you're supporting us so it'd be you know um it would be our own. I might get some. I know a couple of guys with 3D printers. Maybe we'd print our own cases. Uh, before. Oh, there you I, go. I don't know. I haven't quite worked out the logistics of how that's going to happen. But first, I need to see what the what the uh, interest is. Um, and again, it's not it's not necessarily to make money. Although making money is not a bad thing. I wouldn't mind doing it. It's mainly just to have this sort of you know token of the podcast. Right. I like the idea. I think it'd be cool. I would even probably buy one or two just to have them, just so I can have them on my wall yeah. back then, there with with the one-up mushroom. And a companion product would be our you know, media center in a box. You there know, you running, go. Running Plex or, or XBMC or whatever we like. Uh, you know, Maybe even uh, get somebody to build our own theme. Uh, but it, it just it seems to fit the niche of the do-it-yourselfers and the, the geek uh, and the guys who like this podcast. So, audience, tell me, uh, based on what you tell me, I will either proceed with this or make a couple for Christmas presents for Chris and Seth. <laughs> <laughs> either way, it should be great fun. But I plan to put my uh, 
Pi 2 coming in straight into my media center and uh, and see if I get increased performance because I still get in really high def stuff, mainly animated stuff where every pixel is changing. It, it stutters, um, and I'm hoping that maybe throwing the 600% increase in horsepower at it will help. You can't hurt. I love the... I know my little... my. I was going to say my little Roku's handle it, and I don't even think they have that much horsepower, so... Yeah, it's all about the hardware, really. Go ahead, Seth. I was going to say, I, I love the idea of it. Um, a, a, after Most, you moved over to the topic, I wanted to voice something. Yeah. <laughs> you, were, you were searching uh, domains before that. Yes. Uh, m- most uh, home router devices uh, are running ARM chips with mm-hmm. at at 3 or 400 megahertz with you know 256 megs of ram not much more or in some cases even less than the raspberry pi that is out now the pi 1 um and my hunch is that those will drop in price and we might be able to pick if they work well if we can experiment with those and get them to work um uh well we'd be able to pick those up for you know 15 10 dollars whatever the price is going to drop to in the near future um and really be able to produce a, a DIY uh, ARM-based home router that's not going to be you know super powerful, but then again, neither is the thing you're going to go to Best Buy and get. True. It'd be something to play with at the very least. Right. Even if they didn't keep the firewall fire, uh, software on it and they flashed it with something else, they'd still have the cool Boris Box right. logo on it. So there you go. You have cash? Good. <laughs> you want that forwarded? Done. <laughs> Don't touch. It work. Uh, so it let's move on time. to our one bit of listener feedback from Greg, who titles it, quote, miscellaneous crap about episode 179. I already like you, Greg. Um, he says, global warming. Mark stated exactly what my view is. Yes, global warming exists. However, I don't think that mankind has much impact in it at all. I go on, but I'm sure you're getting more, a lot more email about this subject. Bandwidth restrictions. Have you guys actually measured your bandwidth usage? My only choice for broadband is Armstrong One Wire. I have a cap of 200 gigs per month. If I go over that, it's $10 per 50 gigs. We have a Roku that's streaming Netflix at least four hours a day a kid that's playing Steam games a lot, and another that's playing Minecraft a lot. Both of these kids stream Netflix for an hour or two a day. Uh, I have both my Plex box running and streaming out to either my Kindle or my wife's tablet for an hour, two, three, two or three times a week while waiting for my daughter's dance class to finish up. We've gone over that 200 gig cap two times in the past year. Once when my son decided he had to wipe his laptop and re-download all those Steam games, the other was a combination of him downloading a lot of games and me downloading several ISOs and doing pull-downs of all the update packages. So we talked about, uh, Chris, of uh, like a 300-gig limit would be um, not enough. I'm going to pick up with his email later. Uh, I have measured my bandwidth just once. Um and it wasn't honestly all that much, but I do a lot of downloading of big files, uh, ISOs and things like that, just playing with stuff. So what you know, I kid, I jokingly said that 300 gigs, we, we'd use that up in a couple of days. Realistically, probably not, but I do think that two or 300 gigs wouldn't last my family consistently every month. And Chris, you do measure your bandwidth, right? Uh, yeah, I. Turned off the package that I was using. I'm looking to see if I have it on still so I can get to it really quick so I can show you my, I can tell you what my month is as of today. Um, 22 days in. Yeah, 22 days in. 
Let me see here. Go on while I'm looking because i got to find the package. Okay. Well, I'll keep reading the rest of his email. <clears throat> he moves on to say, <clears throat> excuse me, Linux router question. So I decided that, and I scrolled off the page. I decided that since I'm working with Red Hat at work, I, it will, I will benefit me to get my uh, Red Hat certi- certified engineer certification. I bought a Lenovo TS140 server and slapped in a one gig drive. I have to say, I really like this box and it will become my Plex box after I get my certification. I figured that it would work uh, for the dance studio and SSH, that I could work from the desk studio and SSH into the server. I enabled port forwarding uh, of port 22 to this box and was able to SSH into it from the studio. I played around a little and got uh, got out. Two days later, when I SSH'd into it again, there were 4,576 failed login attempts from that box. I'm thrilled that my password is good, but I don't want to take a chance. So I disabled port forwarding. When I turned on port forwarding, I put a line in Plex, and that worked. When I was disabled port forwarding, I was able to restart Plex, and it was working uh, fine again. Since I have port forwarding turned off, how is my Plex box talking to Plex TV and streaming out of my network? As a side note, I would like to be able to port uh, to make port forwarding secure so I can SSH into the box from anywhere. I'd like to be able to work on it from any place without having a big security hole. Thanks for the podcast. Uh, so before we do that, Chris, do you have your numbers? I do. So for the month of February, which, mind you, has been a light month for us because we've a lot of things came up for kids to do things. So, so far, um, my main Plex boxes have been gobbling up 40 gigs each in this month. So that's how many? That's three. So, so three Plex boxes, 40 gigs each, so 120, 120 gigs. Just there. Okay. Just there. Now you add in the machines of anywhere between... 20 and 40 gigs, depending on which ones you're looking at. Um, that would be my son's machine with his Minecraft, um, my main box and my wife's laptop, and then the tablets and phones. So um, the tablets and phones are low. Uh, the total is just over 300 for the month. Yeah, so in three weeks, 22 days, you've, you've already gone over what would be a 300 gig cap at your house. Oh, easily. And yeah. like I said, this has been a light month because we've been out doing all our other stuff this month with um, Taekwondo and dance and everything else. So my yeah, kids pretty yeah. much have YouTube running 24-7 or Netflix Me too. between the three of them. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I again, I haven't measured it significantly. I've, I've only taken snapshots here and there. And I would need – I'm going to guess that we consistently use 350 to 400. I'm the guy your ISP is mad at. <laughs> I'm the reason there are caps. Yeah, me too. You know, and that's just because of the way my household's set up. So, sorry, guys. <laughs> All right, so now to go back to his thing. So, two questions there. How is the Plex box talking back to Plex.tv? Um, there's two ways that can happen. Um, the most likely way is UPnP, Universal Plug and Play. Um, that was something I believe Microsoft invented a while back. Uh, if not, they were in on the consortium that invented, but I think they were the ones who came up with it. UPnP is a way for your devices in your house to configure your router to allow things to talk to them. Don't panic. It's actually a good thing. 
Um, mm-hmm. UPnP is how uh, your Plex box, without you monkeying with anything, can uh, talk out to the Plex server and let the Plex server talk back. Uh, UPnP is how your Xbox and your your PlayStation can communicate and do uh, peer-to-peer games. Uh, I'm pretty sure Steam uses some some UPnP stuff also to get the the lagging down. It's it's a configuration. It's an automatic configuration. Most uh, routers will clear that table after a set amount of time or on a reboot. Uh, so that you're not, you know, it's not forever. Uh, but also the client has the ability to shut those things down. Um, the, the, the problem is that there are some badly designed routers that will let you and UPnP work from the outside, which it was never designed to. So somebody can send a p- packet to your router and say, hey, let me in. And the router says, okay, and does. <laughs> um, most of those have been filtered out now and updated. And if you buy any, uh, bought anything in the last, two or three years, I don't think that's going to be a problem. But that's why UPnP has a bad name among the neckbeard set. So that's probably how your Plex server is doing it. Uh, secondly, it's possible that your Plex, that Plex, the website, I've noticed, plays tricks with that. And it doesn't actually talk back to your server. It asks your laptop or your computer to query it, the local network and see if it can find one and then presents it to you. It's a little JavaScript hack. It's never actually leaving your network. So I had my Plex server shut down for a while. Um, it wasn't reaching out. But if you were on my network and access Plex.tv, you would think that Plex.tv was getting it. It wasn't. It was just having your machine query the local network and say, hey, is there a Plex server here? So it's one of those two things that's probably happening. Well, there's that, and I wonder if there isn't some IPv6 tunneling over IPv4 that could be going on too. Because that not that supposed to cha- or bypass some of the restrictions that could be in place? I know that that exists, but I haven't experimented with it um, very much, so I can't answer that. Okay. I haven't played with it either. That's why I just was bringing it up because I yeah. thought there was something to do. One of the ways that AP, um, IPv6 can get out is to tunnel through IPv4, but marked as um, as a different protocol, so it just goes out. Yeah, well, there is that's called the Teredo protocol, and it does that. But I don't I don't know that it can bypass regular rules. Maybe it can. Okay. I'm not sure. Um. So anyway, uh, and then the next question you talked about was uh, opening ports. Uh, if you open port twenty two to the internet, you will be hacked. End of discussion. Um, if you still want to be able to SSH into something, route some other port publicly to route to port 22 on your machine. So pick a random uh, six-digit number, uh, and, and I mean random. Don't use a phone number. Don't use an address. Just mash on your keyboard a few times and pick six of the numbers out of the middle uh, or five of the numbers and route that port to port 22 on your box and then on your client use that random number that reduces the likelihood that anybody's going to a stumble on that open port and b try ssh traffic over the port that they stumble onto yeah that's that's the only way to be safe about ssh otherwise you're just asking to be hit um when i had my snort filters on for a while uh, no matter w- even if you don't have S or twenty two open, you're still getting hammered on it. It's just that traffic is being dropped. Right. So 
you'd be amazed at how many different ports are actually being hammered on your router every day and you just don't know about it. Um, 22, 23, 80, 80, 80. Um, those are common ports for common 21, services. 23, 21, 25. Mm-hmm. So what's going to happen is those ports are going to get just nailed to the dirt when it comes to traffic from any country. Um, Seth put it, gave us that map a couple of weeks ago of all the traffic and attacks. Good example of which ports are commonly being attacked. And there you go. Yeah. That type of thing is going to come after you just as easily. So good passwords, randomized ports. Um, I, I have VNC open to the public and I, I, I'm not worried about telling you that because it's nowhere near port 5900 which is VNC. So anybody looking for that would have to stumble on the random port that I picked. And it was random. It wasn't, don't use anything meaningful to you. Don't try to remember it. That's where people get into trouble. They pick things they can remember. If you can yep. remember them, somebody else can probably guess them. Um, I have uh, uh, web traffic open. I have uh, SSH traffic open. These are things that I have drilled holes into my firewall to particular devices uh, and my Plex server. But I let Plex handle um, UPnP. It's doing that on its own. Because when you do that, your stra- your how can I say this? The UPnP protocol is limiting the incoming I- IP addresses that traffic can come from. That's part of how that works. So it has told my firewall to allow the Plex range of addresses in. So nobody else could get there anyway. So that's why UPnP is not the the monster that that lots of people like to think it is. If it's used as long, well, if yeah, it's used as long well, as it, with it under chains and and dog collars, so you don't let it get away. <laughs> um, that would be also another good thing to go check your shields up over on our friend Steve Gibson's website, because that's a good place to check to see how much stuff is actually what ports you have open. Because your router, if you're not using, say, a Boris box, your router might be letting ports in that you don't know about. Yeah. My, so, right now, we, I'm running two Skype instance, instances to talk to Chris and Seth. Those are going out via UPnP because Skype is able to dynamically switch ports as the conversation is going on, tell my router, make those updates. They happen in, in rapid speed, and you get the best performance out of Skype if you let PNP loose. Uh, UPnP, but you, you you can't be afraid of it. Well, there's, and that's almost the only way to handle most of that stuff anyway. Most of yeah. the times, unless you want to statically start mapping ports, um, which after the first time you try to start statically mapping ports, you're going to start realizing why UPnP was even invented because mm-hmm. it's a very painful process to go yeah. through and manually map ports because then you also have to worry about if you have multiple machines behind your network and you've port forwarded to a, a directly to a machine, that means those ports are tied to that machine. Right. So they can't go to another one. So next week we're going to do a show all about firewalls. Uh, it's going to be the common things to look out for, the things that people think you should worry about that maybe you shouldn't. UPnP will be discussed again, uh, and we're going to talk about our uh, favorite subjects because it's a co- it's a favorite software. It's something that's come up repeatedly um, with, with the Boris Box discussion that we that we just had. So I think it's time to do another firewall episode. And uh, Greg, thank you for helping to kick that off. You know, it would be cool if we could find somebody in the field that is a firewall guru. 
Yeah, mean, it would be even better if you can find one who can speak English. That's the problem. Right. And, I don't, and, and that wasn't a foreign slant, that slam. That was an engineer slam. Uh, often you get these people who can speak TCP, but they can't speak English. <laughs> right. Yeah. It'd be nice to find somebody who could be in that, you know, they, they could be covering both bases there because it would be really cool to hear somebody who is a professional firewall maintainer. You know, that's their job. I think we that would be a really great... Um, a really great. I just lost my train of thought. Anyway, <laughs> resource. There you go. That'll work. Because that's the corporate thing to say. They're not people. They're resources. No, no, no. Capital. We're now. We're not even oh, resources. Is that the new thing. Yeah. The the newest <laughs> thing is hu- human capital. I've heard. I have. <laughs> I wish you can't make that up. You're no longer people. You're no longer human resources. You're human capital. You know. So just throw some human capital at it. Yeah, I could just. We don't have the human capital for that a project of that magnitude. I can hear somebody saying that. I could too. Man, I think I think I have. Now that you say that, wow. <laughs> somebody asked me uh, just recently, why do I hide my face behind this screen cover, uh, the windscreen? Three reasons: a, it sounds better; b, I'm not that fun to look at; and c, you can't tell how bad the lag is in the audio and video when I'm doing this. Just now I watched Chris move his mouth and it was, it was just like an old Chinese uh, uh, kung fu movie. He was uh, he was talking and the audio came in at a totally different time. So quick answer to that question. Um, so Happy. now let's move on to, hey, that was my idea. And this may be a short discussion because uh, maybe we're not all that creative. Uh, but uh, Seth, you created one of my favorite TV shows. Yes, I actually... Um it was in school and you know, we had, I was a, we had the, our class was, this wasn't an English class. You just had to every week turn in a journal. It could be a page about anything you wanted to. And so I wrote about this team of soldiers who went into this pyramid in Egypt and got transported to another planet through a flash of light. They didn't know where they were. They didn't know what was going on and they were trying to figure out what happened to them. This was before the movie that sounds like it- came out. I say this sounds vaguely familiar, like yeah. I've seen that on the big screen. Yeah, and then lo and behold, a few years later, out comes this movie Stargate, and then this series Stargate SG One. And one of the reasons I love them so much is like that's my imagination I'm watching. So, uh, you know, it was really cool. I've had a few over the years. Um, yeah, I mentioned uh, Pandora. I wish I had come up with the human capital to reach out and. And resource that because uh, I wouldn't have to be talking to you now. Um, for a brief while there in the early 2000s, I believe it was BMW, um, had a, a single windshield wiper on their windshield so that you don't have that stripe in the middle that never gets wiped. I invented that. Um, I remember you talking about that. It went up and down. Yeah. 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 No, it was... Yeah, the 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 BMW version was just mounted in the center, and it still left corners uh, uh, to the side, but they were farther out. My design uh, went totally left to right, like a squeegee, um, popped up and and left no space. Um, so I invented that. Um, nobody's using that anymore, probably because it was hard to do and not worth the effort. And regular windshield wipers are just fine. So there you go. But I did invent that. <laughs> You know, there's a couple of things that I always thought I, I invented first, but I never actually, you know, was able to bring it to market. 
um, smart projectors where you could actually write on the board and they would recognize. Yeah. That was one of the things I thought of when I was in high school back in 99, 98, and, you know, around that area where, you know, it was like, well, why don't we just have something that we could just draw on the board and it put that on the computer? Cause I've seen people that could do beautiful, you know, uh, you know, whiteboard art and then have it gone and no way to bring it back up. <clears throat> right. So, yeah, I, I've thought of that way back then, but obviously I was before my time. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the other things I invented back in the, the, uh, the gory days of tube televisions, um, when letterbox format was just being popular on forehead VCR tapes. So let's set the scene, people. Um, the, a lot of people didn't like the letterbox format because you had the black bars at the top and bottom. I have always been a huge proponent of letterbox format because when you pan and scan, when you cut that down to uh, uh, four or three, you literally lose like forty uh, percent of the video. It just goes away. Um, in fact, there was there was, I believe it's uh, League of Their Own. I think that's what it is. There's a scene where two main characters are talking to each other, looking at each other. One of them says the line, the other one reacts to it. In the 4 by 3 letterbox version, you don't see the reaction. It totally changes the scene <laughs> because they didn't pan and scan it. So I've always been a big mm. fan of letterbox, but nobody likes the black bars at the top and bottom. It's still a problem. People still don't like that. Right. Right. But now it's when you're watching 4 by 3 content on a 16 by 9 TV. So I invented a TV that was 16 by 9 all the time, and had little sliding louvers that came in when you were watching 4 by 3 content. So it, it closed in part of the screen, so it was like a console. There was such a thing as a TV console. Get off me. So this, this would have fit. It would have been wood grain. Yes, I said wood grain on a TV. I'm old. Um, so my idea was to have these, these things come in. And th so that never happened on TVs. What happened was we changed TVs. But where you do see my idea is at the movie theater where you're watching the little cheap projector with the pre-screen stuff and then the slide, the screen, the curtain slide down and another curtain slides in to change the aspect ratio. I invented that. You're welcome. <laughs> and, and you didn't hear a word about it when it came out, when, <laughs> yeah. when they moved to it. God darn it. If I had just told somebody about my idea, maybe that would have made it. No, you told me. I just didn't or do maybe. anything with it. I, I remember these conversations. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, you guys got anything else? Or is that it? Your, your one claim to fame is Stargate? I mean, come on. If you only got one, that's a good one. Yeah, that's have. pretty good. So. Yeah, there's been a couple of movies that I swear I've, I was a part of before they came out, too. I just don't have the exact names because they were like, you know, I'm in case anybody hasn't realized, I'm a big fantasy guy. And so there's been a lot of movies. It's like, wait, I did that. That was part of one of my campaigns two years ago. And, <laughs> and yet there it is on the big screen. It's like, hmm, somebody's stealing my brainwaves. I wrote a fantasy novel in the 10th grade. It was terrible. And I'm glad it doesn't exist. But it was, <laughs> it was the classic uh, wizard and giant and dwarf and archer meet up and a strange set of uh, circumstances and I'll go off on a quest. Um, it was every cliche in the book, every trope imaginable thrown in there for good measure. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> uh, the next one is not ours, but I'm going to, or it's not mine, but it's, it's, it's belongs to the show. Aaron, who used to be on the show, invented the self tuning guitar. 
So the idea was you have pickups, uh, an extra set of pickups under the strings on an electric guitar, and then a set of servos where you strum the guitar. Each uh, pickup listens to just the string above it and listens to where it is, and then the servos tighten or loosen the strings as necessary. So you go, and you're in tune. Uh, he invented that, that told cool. us about it. I remember that idea, and now you can actually buy that product. Sorry, Aaron. You shouldn't have told me about it. You should have told an an inventor or a, a, a investor about it. Yeah, venture capitalist. Yeah, yeah. I would love to be a venture capitalist. Could you imagine all the cool ideas you would see in a, in a year? Well, there's two steps to being a venture capitalist. First, become a billionaire. Uh, yep. Second, invest in cool ideas. I'm still working on step one. <laughs> I think we're all still working on step one. Yep. Come on, Element OP. Where's my millions? <laughs> Well, when I get it, you will get a cut of it. I promise. Sure. Uh-huh. Wink, wink. <laughs> and the last one is actually one of my favorite apps on the phone right now is one that I invented. I just didn't tell anybody about. It's called Cam Scanner. Um, I'm not sure if it's available for iPhone. I think it is. You take a picture, and it takes that picture and spits it out as a PDF. So you have your own scanner built right into your phone. I use it not all the time, but I use it frequently enough. Anytime somebody says, "Hey, can you, uh, you know, email, fax this form to me?" No, because I don't live in 1992, but I will email <laughs> it to you. Uh, yep. So I invented that uh, back uh, before every phone had a camera in it. Back when the the little flip phones were just getting cameras, I thought, would it be great if you just take a picture of this? And then could spit it out as a as a printable format. Yeah, you could email tix, uh, pictures, but wouldn't it be great if you could change the format? Well, somebody did that, and now you can buy their app for ninety nine cents. And I did, and it's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say I thought Google Apps has an has an app that does that built into the Google. Um, it's a Google widget for Google Drive. Okay, I believe you. Um, I've been using that for a long time. Anytime I see a form that or a recipe is the one I use it a big big thing for when I see a recipe or somebody hands me a recipe card. It's like snap. Okay, thank you for the card, and now I have it in my recipe folder on Google Drive. A long time ago, I was in a webinar with my boss at the time, and the last slide of the webinar was contact information, and we were sitting at his desk. I was standing behind him. And we were watching the webinar on his computer, and the thing came up, and he started grabbing for a pen to write down this this information. I took my phone out, held it up, snapped a picture of it, and emailed it to him, and he went, oh, thanks. <laughs> it, was, it was like, yeah, that's the reason I hired you. I forgot. You're the guy who doesn't do scrabbling around for paper and pencil. That's right, because that's silly. <laughs> yeah. I take pictures at work all the time of whiteboards, right? Yep. It's like, instead of, why, why on earth? Would I transcribe what somebody already put on a whiteboard? Why would I make notes that somebody already made notes of when I can just take a picture of it? That is a freaking brilliant idea. Oh my gosh. I love it. I've never, I've (laughs) never just have a brain before. (laughs) Cause well, I never take notes. So the concept of writing it down, I'm just too lazy to do that. And I write too slow and my handwriting is too um, ineligible or illegible. But dude, I could just I could hold up my camera and snap yeah. and have the monkey sound. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so that's two ideas I've given you, Seth. The snapping a picture of the whiteboard and the uh the vacation spreadsheet. Yeah. You're welcome. I like that. <laughs> See what what I, oh, I want to put up a vacation spreadsheets. 
<laughs> oh, God. Seth, circle you're going to drive me to drink. If I can get some human <laughs> capital, we can develop these things. <laughs> oh, fun. Now I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> so, all right, we've stumbled into that. What are some life hacks that you guys do that maybe I don't know about? Oh, there's so many. The one that I usually use a lot of is the Google Notes. Now that you can share notes over Google, me and my wife use that for everything. Um, seeing a, a good movie come, you know, a trailer on a TV, we'll Google Note it. We'll type it into Google Notes, and then that or the the it's not Google Notes. What the heck is that called? Keep. The, keep. That's it. And then we share them together. So when she sees one, she'll put it on with her initials after it, saying that she put it in. And I'll put it in with my initials. And then when we go, when we sit down for movie night, we can go, well, what do we want to watch? We have a list of every movie that we want to watch, the kids want to watch, uh, somebody who suggested a movie. It's right there. I do the same thing with books. Um, it's just Google Keep is my friend. I use that thing all, every day. I have a widget just for Google Keep on my phone. I'm an Evernote guy. Same thing, different tool. Yep. That's cool stuff. Yeah. Um, we also use that keep for uh, our bucket list. So when we come across things we want to do, we'll bucket list it, and that's the name of the note. When I do need to take notes in a meeting, um, my corporate structure where I work is such that all the good tools, like, for example, Evernote, is blocked. You can't use it. Um, so what I do is I'll take a note and then email it to myself, and then take that note and put it on my work computer. That's not much of a hack, but it is something that, that I do frequently. Um, One thing I just for, found out at work is that if I can go into Exchange and Outlook and do notes in Outlook, and I can sync those with my iPhone. So, Yep. I use that one a lot, too, especially if, you're look, if you have long, complicated paths to remember. Right. I'll go to Outlook paste the path into a, into the task because the task for me, my tasks synchronize uh, the notes don't so I can synchronize tasks. Well, I'll just put it in the task as the file, the file path. And then I have that wherever I go within a couple of clicks, I have it whenever someone corners me to, you know, take care of something. Do you have an iPhone at work, Chris? Or, yes, I do. Um, the notes is not synced by default, but you can go into your settings and sync them. I just, oh, like really? I say, I'll I just recently that found out. that out. And, uh, because there's tons of stuff I need, you know, Hey, how do I do this? And so I was like, I'll bring up that note, copy and paste into an email and shoot it over to them. So yeah. And it, it's, is, is that something you have to change on the phone itself yeah, or on the server side? You change it on the phone itself. You go into settings. And then you go down to uh, mail contacts calendars. Then you pick your exchange account. And one of the, there's mail contacts, calendars, reminders, and notes. By default, notes is off. You just, you turn notes on and give it a bit to sync and you're good to go. Awesome. I'll have to go do that when I leave the show. All right. So here's another life hack from me that I just recently shared with, uh, with a coworker. Um, I, it's three tools, right? So I, I have a Google calendar. Specifically for my work stuff. Just go create a yep. Gmail account. It's fine. I sync my Outlook calendar to my Google calendar. Now, you used to be able to do that using Google Sync. Just very recently, Google Sync was deprecated. Uh, well, for actually, mm -hmm. it's been deprecated for like a year, but it still worked. 
like in August, they changed the API. So now it doesn't work anymore. Um, so I, I have a little app uh, called uh, very creatively Calendar Sync Pro. Um, it, it was like nine bucks. There's a trial version that you can, you can check out. The trial version is only one way syncing. You can push from a primary, but not to, uh, not pull back from the other one. The pro one, uh, it's worth it. Just do it because I said so. Um, it's India. It's in some, the website has something to do with India. So you'll know that's the one India PPP. I think it is anyway. Um, that syncs my two calendars back and forth. So I can delete something on my Google calendar on my phone and it's a delinked, uh, d- deleted on my uh, Outlook cal- calendar at work uh, every hour is when, how often it syncs up. Uh, or I can do it the other way around. But then the third uh, leg of the stool is an app called Agent on my Android phone. Agent scans my calendar and selectively mutes my phone anytime there's a meeting with a status of busy. So I don't always have to remember to turn my phone off. Uh, and, and also, it, so somebody sends me a text when I'm in a meeting, it replies to them, I'm in a meeting right now, reply with the word urgent, and the text will come through. So you can yeah. do that. Or uh, yeah, I have it silences calls. If anybody calls twice within five minutes, um, it will let that second call through assuming it's an emergency. So that's the meeting feature of agent. Uh, there's also a sleep feature of agent uh, based on parameters you set up. Mine is if it's after 11 o'clock, it's charging, and I haven't touched my phone in 10 minutes, it goes into sleep mode. Sleep mode has the same things. I'm sleeping right now, text urgent, and I'll let it through, or two calls can come in. Or, for example, my boss can send me a text or a call at any time regardless of my meeting settings. You can set up different people for different tasks. So my boss has a an ex- exclusion in the meeting task so that, you know, I don't want him to get a text message saying I'm in a meeting. He has the right to pull me out of a meeting. Uh, there's a driving one that uh, can can be based off of GPS. I don't use that. I use it off of my Bluetooth. When I connect it to my car's Bluetooth, any incoming texts are read to me, and I get the option to reply back in voice. Um, and calls, you can either just have them not uh, sent, or I, I go ahead and have them routed through to my earpiece. Uh, that triumvirate of tools makes me so much more productive. I have my calendar everywhere I need to be. I have my phone. I don't have to remember to mute my phone. Remembering to mute my phone when I go into a meeting is not hard. Remembering to unmute it when I come out is what I always had a trouble with. So I walk around all day with a muted phone and nobody can contact me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've done that. That's why I'm looking up. Is Agent uh, from Ego Motion? Uh, let me look. It's a the big only a? one called Agent. Yeah. The big A? Okay. I remember you bringing that one up before, and I was like, oh, that sounds perfect. Um, but I couldn't remember what you said it was, so now that you bring that up, I'm going to go look at that one after the show. Uh, I like to, I'll like i bring up Trigger. That's my favorite tool, uh, at least for mobile, especially if you have a handful of these little stickers laying around that have the, the NFC tabs. The NFC tab in them. Uh, I use these things for just about everything when I don't want to, if it's a repetitive task. So... Because the highway I drive on to go to work is a dangerous one, you know, there's been a bunch of wrecks on it, yada, yada, my wife panics, she worries about me. And so I have a sticker at work sitting on my monitor, and so when I get to work, I swipe my phone over that sticker, and it automatically sends her a text message saying, I made it to work okay, it will mute my phone, or it'll put my phone, my personal phone to vibrate, and it will automatically turn off my Wi-Fi because I'm at work and I don't have Wi-Fi access. And will text my son for his wake-up call in the morning. Hmm. All with one swipe of a of a sticker. 
So, and I have it set for a handful of other things. Um, the only, I wish I didn't have to use two different apps, but I do a lot of phone automation with, um, trigger the NFC stickers and, um, if this, then that. Yep. And if, if this and then that would allow me to add NFC stuff to it, I wouldn't have to have both of them. Um, but I got a bunch of, um, if this, then that things are going as well. Uh, soon to be more as I, add some more automated tools to my house, like lights and locks and things of that sort. Cool. Anything else that you guys can think of? Any neat, I, I find this stuff fascinating when, when, I mean, you guys have given me stuff that, that I will probably go and try. Um, listeners, what, let us know what your life hacks are. Yeah. As well. Do you want some of these stickers, Mark? Do you <laughs> have, they're cheap. I can send you some. I have extras, so. What so? What do you mean by cheap? How much do they cost? Um, I got when I bought my first round. Um, I bought twenty of these little. They're just paper thin stickers. I bought twenty of these and then a keychain and six heavier, like rubberized bu- buttons that you can actually, you know, they're button buttons. Um, I bought all of them for like twenty two dollars ship. Oh yeah, okay. So that's that is dirt cheap. Yeah, they're, you know, when you just buy like a handful of the, the 20 pack of stickers, it's like $6. Okay. And, and if you actually go through the trigger app and buy it from them, they just charge it through Google Wallet and ship it to you. So every time you throw one of those on somewhere, you're, you're dropping a quarter. Yeah. That's not a big deal. Yeah. And especially, you know, the, the keychain, I will say don't, don't buy the keychain one. Um, it's just a leather hook that, or it's a, it's a, Keychain, but the the leather that they use to bind it to your your key ring is kind of poor, so the that leather wears off pretty quick. I, I lost it mine, what a month and a half after putting it on, so that isn't worth it. But the big rubberized stickers, they're worth it, and so are the the paper stickers. And what's really cool is if you hold the paper stickers up to a light, you can actually see the um the coiling of the wire for the NFC. I've been wanting to do things like, you know, automate telling my wife when I'm leaving work. Um, and I've looked at doing like geofencing and things like that. But then anytime I go to an offsite meeting, she gets a text saying I'm leaving work. Right. Um, so one of those stickers would be perfect. I, I put one where I drop my phone and tell it if it's between the hours of 3 p.m. and 5 p.m., send this text message. Yep, exactly. And then I have one because I get home usually before she does. So I have another one at home uh, at right at my front door. That I swipe it and it sends her a text saying I made it home. It turns back on my Wi-Fi and yeah, it, it's it's a cool. Yeah. They're they're handy once you start using them. You're like, well, no, I don't have to do anything because I could just swipe this silly <laughs> sticker and it does you know twenty things at once. You know, it's important that I tell my wife when I'm coming home because she's expected to have dinner ready the second I walk in the door. And if she doesn't, <laughs> I beat her severely. Uh, so if I forget to send the text message and she gets a beating because of that, I feel a little bad about that a lot, but a little bad about that. <laughs> You just got to get over feelings like that, Mark. <laughs> the the trouble is, if you don't beat your wife every day, she starts to think she has rights, and then you know things really just get bad from there. But I'm dumb. Okay, so uh, that's I'm going to end that uh, discussion and all others following it. And because we've taken up over an hour of of hostful goodness, we're going to do one news story, but it's the one that I think is interesting. Just who writes? The Linux kernel anyway. 
That is a good question. Yeah, there's um, they recently put out their like kind of state of the kernel report, and I was gonna go look at the report itself, but I didn't want to sign up on the website. So this comes from uh, ZDNet's coverage of their thing, and um, just a bunch of numbers here. And I just wanted to let the listeners know I am learning. I pulled out the different salient points and I stuck them in the show notes, so uh, I'm not skimming through the article. See, Mark, I'm keeping it raw and real. Um, yeah, 19.4% of all Linux kernel development done since September of 2013 appears to have been done by individual developers. So that's roughly 20% of the code. One out of every five things was done by an individual guy such as you or me. Um, probably not me because I don't do much coding, but, um, and then they break it down by the major corporations and leading the way was Intel with, uh, just over 10 and a half percent. Followed by Red Hat, 8.4%. And then Lenario, Samsung, IBM, and SUSE winds out the major contributors at 3%. Um, wow. Yeah. And there were several neat facts, and I'll just kind of give you some of the bullet points. They uh, found out that in any given development cycle, only uh, approximately one-third of the developers involved contributed exactly one patch. So it's not like you have this guy trying to do everything. You have a bunch of people, and they work on their section of the code, and they patch their section of the code. Um, since um, 2.611, the top 10 developers have contributed um, 8.2% of the code total. So that shows you that it's not just a few people. You know, the top 10% don't even make up 10% of the code. So there's really a lot of people in there doing it. Um, the Linux kernel changes are coming fast and furious. The uh, community merges patches at over 7.7 patches per hour on average. Um, they talked about how the uh, unpaid developers uh, contributing seems to be... Um, diminishing uh in uh, 2012 it was 14 percent and this last one founded at 11.8 percent so um Let, let's stop there okay. for a second i think uh, uh yes i can see that as maybe troubling that linux is becoming a professional thing and the everyman isn't part of it anymore but i choose to see that as another light the reason that patches by unpaid developers are becoming uh, fewer is that companies are hiring developers and paying them um, I could see that. I could see that. Either that or um, people's wor real world life is starting to get more in the way as we try to cram more and more into our life. Yeah, I just, you know, I mean, and that was, you know, on, on the one hand, it's good because you have people, that's their job, that stuff they do, um, as opposed to somebody just doing it out of labor or passion. But it kind of... um you know, I mean, it just kind of shows the change. It's getting away from the kind of, you know, anti-establishment, you know, we're sticking it to the man to now it's becoming another tool of the man. And, uh, you know, it's, it's well, maybe that's just a fine example of more and more people going to the Linux and learning how to become uh, Linux professionals. 
um, where you can go to the to their website and learn using step by step video courses how to take you from being a beginner to a Linux administrator, preparing yourself for certification using, uh, as I said already, the step by step videos, the PDF study guides, the practice exams, uh, their amazing lab environment where you can have up to four machines running simultaneously out of eight possible machines, um, and then the the all the cart learning that lets you pick up what you want to do when you want to do it, um, and you know they're they're adding new things all the time. There's not just uh, all about Linux. They have Amazon Web content as well, certified by independent uh, uh, reviewers as being high-quality content. They're, they're, one of their most recent courses is Ruby on Linux. So you get to r- run, uh, learn the Ruby programming lam- language in the Linux environment. Uh, they have a Linux Essentials. Uh, the idea there is that you don't need to know everything. You just need to know the basics so that you can understand uh, that and so much more over at the Linux Academy for a, a pittance for something that a, 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 a an unemployed guy can afford. Twenty five bucks a month is the highest price you could possibly pay. If you want to buy in advance, uh, you get cheaper. Anything else, the more you buy, the cheaper it is. Sixty five dollars for three months, or two hundred and fifteen dollars annually, which breaks down to just under eighteen dollars a month. But if you go and use the uh, uh, URL linuxacademy dot com slash everyday linux, you get a special price on that. You will pay less. So there you go. I slipped an ad in there. Now, Seth, please continue your article. Yeah, I was just going to, uh, I was going to do that anyway. Uh, uh, the, uh, they summed up, like this is the last sentence of the article. Put it all together, and what you see is a Linux that now, more than ever, is a Linux created by big business rather than volunteers. There's money to be made in them their code bases. And so using something such as linuxacademy.com to grow your skill set, I mean, there's money to be made out there. So, and, you know, and, and I know, I don't, I don't, I think that's a good thing. I know that the, the pioneers of the Linux world, the old gray beards would, would decry that and say, you know, like you said, it's, it's the man taking over our thing. Uh, but the only way your thing is going to continue to grow is if the man gets involved. Yep. Uh, Linux yeah. has gone, has grown, has grown as big as it can get with where we are now. Yeah. Um it's it's got to it's got to have some big guns invested in it. It's got to have some deep to- pockets if it's going to grow. And this is this is a good thing to me. Seeing that 20% of the code is is contributed by people who are paid to contribute c- code. That that is huge. There wasn't anybody paid to contribute code 20 years ago. Right. And another thing, the great thing about Linux, there are so many communities where you can get involved and and if you're new to Linux, don't try to be involved in every single thing out there. Pick a couple of things, give them a try. If you find you like one, stick with it. If not, drop it and pick up something else. You can get real world experience that employers would be looking for in the community. You know, bug reports, bug fixes, coding, uh, getting a good reputation in the forum. You know, like this one guy who said he wanted to get his Red Hat certified um, engineer uh, certification. If he goes, if he has a good rep in the forums on Red Hat site, then when he goes into a job, he can use his community standing as one of the talking points when he's selling himself to get that position. And, you know, it works out well for him because he was able to get experience, but without a job. And then he can turn around and leverage that experience to get a job. So there is still you know, tremendous opportunity to get involved in Linux. Um, 
without having a paying job. You can still get experience without a job in Linux. Some things you really got to have experience to get the job, but you can't get experience without a job. That's not yet true in Linux. You can get lots of experience right. without a job. You know, there's tons of opportunities in the forums out there. If somebody, and that's the big if, if you want to put in the time, it's the exact same thing as Linux Academy. If you want to put in the time, it's a great resource. If you don't want to put in the time, you know, you're throwing money away. And the democratization of open source is still there. Um, the patch that the guy who's working on the weekends puts in is reviewed with the same um, intensity uh, as the guy from uh, paid by Red Hat to do it. The patches are all reviewed, you know, at a rate of seven per hour, right? Yeah. They're cranking those out. And if your code is good, it doesn't matter your pedigree. And and so that makes the the vision of open source still alive and well. And, and not going to change anytime soon, I think. Right. I mean, you still have the the Linux um, code protector, you know, uh, Linus himself and the Linux Foundation. They're, you know, monitoring this stuff closely, and that's fine. Everybody needs a, a, a kernel Nazi. Um, and, you know, when, when Linus moves on, somebody else equally as as mean and nasty will need to have that position. You need you need a good kernel Nazi. Uh, but the the... The eyes with which they look are not who made it, but is the code good and does it work well? And that's all that matters, right. really. Yep. All right, that was a fun show. Um, not at all the way I expected it to go, <laughs> but I should be used to that uh, by now. This is the part of the show where Seth tells us what happened this week in tech history. Okay, I uh, stumbled across this little fact, and I thought I would stick it out there for everyone. Uh, February the 19th, 1990, so 25 years ago, the release of Photoshop 1.0. Um, Photoshop, wow. I mean, you know, there are other image manipulation programs, but Photoshop is the name in image manipulation. You know, some when somebody says Photoshop it, they don't necessarily mean use Photoshop. Right. They mean fix the photo it's like the same way if you yeah. say xerox that you don't mean find a xerox copier you mean make a copy so yeah xerox kleenex jello uh it has become eponymous Epo eponymous Epo how do you pronounce that i can i've only ever I, seen it read uh yeah i've only uh, read it too but anyway it's it has become the thing that is the name for which all things like it are uh, you know, Photoshop disasters and, and let's go to Photoshop it or somebody looks at something that's Photoshopped. Uh, that's amazing. I wonder if they thought, uh, in 1990 that they'd be anywhere, uh, anywhere near that. I, I can't imagine that they would, but, uh, that's cool yeah. that they've become not only a household name, but they have become the thing, the name in that thing. Yeah. And, um, right. they put out kind of, um, and of course, it's from Adobe, so it's a PDF, but you can view it online. A, a list of kind of Photoshop achievements. And I did not know this, but the Abyss was released in August of 89. It was the first motion, motion picture to use Photoshop. So before Photoshop 1.0 was released, wow. it was already used by, uh, in major motion pictures. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and again, that's not like, I mean, I thought the abyss was okay. I thought it was about 18 hours too long, but, um, you know, it's just 
It was James Cameron. What do you yeah. expect? So it was pretty cool. Um, that, you know, it, and it, you know, they were using a, by definition, I guess it was a beta software since it hadn't got to 1.0 yet. That is a neat bit of trivia. Um, so while we're on the subject of neat bits of trivia, Seth, what do you have this week to bring down my productivity so that you seem like a better hiring choice? Well, there's lots of people out uh who are kind of amateur photographers and so i thought you know i kind of stick with the photoshop theme and i had some new stories we didn't get to um this stuck with the photo theme but you can go to photo.net um photo.net is a robust collaborative peer-to-peer educational platform for photographers ranging from hobbyists to professionals so me personally, I'm not a big photographer, um, photo taker type person, but you know, you can go there. There's different contests and you can just see photos of the day and see all the neat things people catch and lots of stuff to look around on. And if you are a, uh, photography hobbyist, then, you know, go there and go, Oh, I never thought of taking a photo like that. Um, they talk about different, um, hardware you can use, um, all these kinds of stuff, um, best and worst of photography out there from a, a hobbyist to a pro photo.net. Very cool. I like it. I'm a, I count myself as a hobbyist. So, well, be photography is, is become one of those things like cooking where professional grade tools are available to everybody. So, you know, it's easy to be an amateur photographer using only a, a camera phone. You know, they're as good as the pro models were, you know, 20 years ago. Right. So it's, it's, it's interesting. There's lots of really bad photos in the world, uh, from people who think they're photos, uh, photographers, but it also, the barrier to entry is, is almost non-existent. You can get a pro grade camera for, you know, a couple hundred couple bucks. Hundred. Yeah. A couple um, hundred. And, and that pro grade camera is probably better than the pro grade cameras that, the pros were using, you know, in the forties and fifties, right? These right. iconic, um, who's the guy that does the black and white stuff. I, I knew his name until Ansel I started Adams, talking about was it. it. Ansel Adams, right. Your, your phone is better than what he had to work with when in his heyday, most likely. Um, so now it's not the technology that holds you back. It's the, the technique, the talent, the skill, and the same as cooking. You know, everybody thinks they're a, a gourmet, uh, because we have great tools available. Um, and I, I think that's it's a it's a sign of the times. And and I oh, think Apple much. is more to more responsible for that, for that than most people want to give them credit for. There were camera phones before Apple, but the iPhone made the camera good. Uh and other people had to run to catch up and then even surpass the iPhone. Uh but I think that they I think Apple gets credit for starting this. And I don't no, I like think to you're give right. Apple credit for anything. Uh, well, I wouldn't say I think starting, you're right on that one. but bringing it to the masses. Well, starting the mass migration okay. is what I'm talking about. Okay. Well, okay. I'm not going to split hairs. I mean, Nokia makes better camera phones. Um, other people have better. So the Photoshop guys, right? Without them, um, people wouldn't be doing this stuff. You know, uh, Instagram is a thing because Photoshop was a thing. Right. Right. Well, yeah, and, and, you know, and back in the day, Photoshop cost you hundreds of hundreds of dollars. And now you can use Instagram filters to do effects that just a couple of generations ago would have broken the bank. So, you know, yeah. you can also throw your camera in the mud and kick it and not need Instagram. Yeah, that's true. 
Instagram. Make sure it lands, Making lands down photos first. look crappy since 2010. Yep. Pretty much. <laughs> Stealing Facebook's money since shortly after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, this, this is really nice. Um, this, this one I just uh, looked at here is a, a banner that says Alf Price. The H is kind of folded up, and there's this little girl looking at it like, what the what? Alf Price? And it's just a neat shot. Um, Interesting. I like those photojournalistic everyday life sort of things. All right. This is the part of the show where I tell you how you can contact us and let us know what a terrible show this was and how wrong I am in every word that I speak. You can go to elementop.com, click the contact us button at the top of the page. That will send a nicely formatted email to me that gets priority in my inbox. If you would like to uh, send an email to all of us, if you're an email kind of guy, you don't like web forms, you you can't handle the su- uh, the super hard captcha with questions like, what grows in a cornfield? Uh, you can uh, handle Weeds. that by uh, sending an email to element uh, to edl at elementop.com. Or if you want your voice to appear right here beside mine, you can call 559-IMOP from anywhere in North America. That's a free call outside North America. Just send me your audio file. I'm, I'm easygoing in that way. Uh, so that's how you can contact us. We love it when you do. Uh, Greg, you have not only given us fodder for this show, but the next show to come. The fact is we ran out of uh, real ideas a long time ago. Uh, so we need you guys <laughs> to give us ideas because we got nothing. Uh, yeah, so bring them. <laughs> if you've got people you want us to interview, and uh, you know we, we're happy to have them not return our calls, uh, just let us know, and and we'll do that again. We do this show for you, and we hope that you enjoy it. Seth Chris, as always, thanks for being the awesome guest that you are, listener out there. Thank you for being the awesome listener that you are. And I say that ends this episode of Everything Else. <laughs>